Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, hallelujah, Lord. Father, we do declare you as Lord of heaven and earth. And Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. You have done wonderful things to us and in us, Lord. And we rejoice eternally in the work that you have done. Father, we thank you for the new birth, that imperishable seed, that seed which has life and power in it, which is uh, such tremendous power that it is life-changing power. Father, we just ask in Jesus' name that through the things we learn together, Father, that you will transform our lives, that, Father, indeed our whole lives should be just examples of what it is to be mature and stable and holy before you. Father, I want to pray for the world in which we live. Father, you see the people on this planet Earth who live in fear. They don't know what is happening. They don't know what is going to happen. And they don't know there's a loving Father in heaven who cares for them. Father, we do lift up those people around us, even tonight. Father, the people who live in Chichester, the people who live in Bognor, people who live in Worthing, Littlehampton, all the villages in between. Oh, Father, will you just move by your Spirit tonight? Father, will you pour your love upon them? May they know your peace. May they know that Jesus loved them and died for them. And Father, may they indeed turn to you and know you. Father, we thank you for these days of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Father, as we talk about these days that are to come, I just pray, Father, that the knowledge that we receive may spur us on to be more desperate and more urgent in our evangelism. Father, just come and anoint me tonight, Lord. And may the words of my mouth just prove acceptable to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Amen. We're making very good progress as far as our study of future prophecy is concerned. And we're dealing with the uh, seven-year period of time called the Tribulation. Last time, I talked about the political situation, and I talked about this uh, revived Roman Empire which is going to come, which was called the Beast. Today, I want to consider, quite simply, three of the main characters who have their being in the period we call the Tribulation, and who dominate the world scene. Now, we've seen one of the people already, We also know quite a bit about the second, so it's really the third that I'm going to concentrate on. So let's begin tonight. In the chapter of Revelation, we were in a great deal last time, and that is Revelation and chapter 13. So if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Last time we were mainly in verse 1, right on then to verse 7 and we did a study of those seven verses. I'm going to take a bit more of the chapter today. Now, do you remember in the first seven verses, we saw that this amazing thing is going to happen. The Roman Empire, which everyone thought was long dead and gone, is going to be revived. And people are going to be so amazed when they see Rome rising again, they're going to wonder after the beast, and they're going to absolutely marvel and start worshipping the system that comes up when the beast appears. And we saw that there actually will be a man who is the leader of the revived Roman Empire, a dictator, probably in Rome, we saw all this last time, and he will actually be the head of the system which we call the beast. 
One of the interesting things of history is that very often the man at the top of a system is totally identified with the system. Do you remember with uh, Alexander the Great, by the way, who was at the head of the Greek Empire? Um, in fact, the empire isn't known as the Greek Empire, it's known as Alexander's Empire, because Alexander epitomized the state that he was part of. And so, in, we find in Revelation that the dictator of the revived Roman Empire is often called by the name of the system, i.e. the beast. And you find in uh, Revelation, sometimes the beast refers to the whole system, the state. Sometimes it refers to the man who is the top of the system. The sort of uh, principle that the state is me as uh, Charles de Gaulle is supposed to have said, in French, of course. You know, that when you're thinking about France, have me in your mind because I epitomise France. And also the way, I suppose, that Churchill epitomised England during the war years. And so, in these seven verses, we found the rise of Rome and we found a dictator. Both are referred to as the beast. But it's not those that I'm going to concentrate on. In fact, the dictator is one of the characters that we're going to see tonight. But to begin with, I want to go further down in Revelation 13. And I want to go specifically to verse 11 and verse 12. For here, John, who is watching all of these events, suddenly has his attention turned away from the first beast, and he notices that something else is happening. Look what he says. I'll read verse 11. And I beheld another beast, he says, coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now, here is not the first beast, this is another beast. But in Greek, we learn something important from this little phrase, because we have the use of the word another. And in Greek, the word another uh, can, is actually the translation of two Greek words. The first is alos, which is A-double-L-O-S. The second is heteros, H-E-T-E-R, OS. They're both translated um, another, but they have a distinct meaning, a distinct difference in meaning. Alos means another of the same type. Heteros means another of a different type. Now, for example, imagine that uh, you are a gentleman who have just and you've just bought yourself at Morant's or some other department store a pair of brown trousers with turnips. And you get home, and it sounds ghastly, doesn't it? But you get home, and you find that the brown trousers with turn-ups are just too small. So you decide, well, I'll go back into Morant's, and they change things there. And you walk into Morant's, and you say to the shop assistant, I bought these yesterday, they're too small. Could I change them for another pair? Now, in Greek, if you, he used the word alos, he means I want another pair of brown trousers with turn-ups. And she knows that. However, if he used the word heteros, he means any other pair of trousers. <laughs> they can be red with pink stripes on, as long as they're not brown with turnips. Do you see? It's another of the same sort and another of a different sort. You've got it wonderfully used in Galatians. We won't turn to, won't turn to it tonight. But uh, Paul, talking about the Galatian church and talking to them, he says, I've preached the gospel to you, and yet he says in chapter 1, I find that you are turning away to another gospel. You see? And what does he use? He uses heteros. 
to another gospel, entirely different from the gospel I preached. And then in the next sentence he says, not that there is another, alos. Do you see? Isn't that wonderful? And you've got the two words. So he says to them, you've turned away to another gospel, and he says, but there isn't another gospel the same as the gospel I preach. And you read it for yourself in Galatians 1, I think it's uh, verse 5 and verse 6, and you'll find the two words used here. Now the question is, which one is used in verse 11 here? In verse 11, I beheld another beast, and it's the word alos, which means a beast of the same sort as the first beast, one who is related to the first beast. So what do we know about this beast? This is devilish, this beast. This has the power of the devil, and it is one of the same sort as the first beast. And then he says this, coming up out of the earth. Do you remember that in verse 1 of chapter 13, he said the first beast rose from the sea. He then says this one rose out of the land. And you've no idea what Bible commentators do to this. They draw all sorts of conclusions out of the fact that the first one rose out of the sea and the second one rose out of the land, you see. Now, we saw that the sea referred to humanity or the people in the world. Actually, the, the fact that this second one rises out of the earth or the world, as the, the Greek word is, means that it comes from exactly the same source as the first one. And to prove that to you, uh, would you keep your finger in the place? Go back to a, a, this key passage in Daniel 7, and you'll find something very interesting. In Daniel 7, we have Daniel seeing a vision, and he, most wonderfully, has an interpreting angel, one whose words are now found in the canon of Scripture, and one who told him the truth through and through. And in chapter 7, verse 3, here is Daniel writing about the vision that he saw. And can you see what it says? Daniel 7, verse 3, And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now in his vision, he sees them rising, rising out of the sea, and we know it's rising out of the sea of humanity. But the uh, interpreting angel who tells him what this vision means in verse 17 says something very interesting. He says this, these great beasts, in verse 17 of Daniel 7, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth, out of the world. And what we learn from this is that the sea and the earth are actually synonymous as far as uh, the, the Bible is concerned. One is picture, the picture language, the other is actually uh, a factual description of what happens. And in Revelation 13, therefore, it simply means that on the face of the earth, not ju just one beast comes up, but another beast comes up. And here we get it, and then you have a description given by John. Now John lived in the Middle East, in Asia Minor at this time, and he recognized the look of this beast. Look what he says about this beast, this second beast. He says, and he had two horns like a lamb, and the, the sheep and especially the lambs in Asia Minor are of a certain type, and the lambs have two horns sticking up from their heads. You can just turn to Britannica, by the way, Encyclopedia Britannica, which I've done today, and uh, they have a lovely 14th edition. They have a lovely picture of one of these lambs with two horns sticking up. He looks at this beast coming up, and he says it looks just like a lamb that I've seen on the main mainland 
many, many times. And for us, what does it mean? Here is a man who has the temperament of a lamb. He is uh, gentle. He's wonderfully nice. I use the word advisedly, you know. He is overflowing with human good. But do you see the end of the verse? It says, and he spake as a dragon. In other words, the devil was in his words and the devil was in his thinking. And Jesus would have described this as a wolf in sheep's clothing. This man rises and he's one of the most lovely people that the earth has ever seen. But his words are absolutely the words of the devil coming out of his mouth. Do you know, in the day in which we live, we have men like this around already. People who the world would say, but they're marvellous men. Fine Christian men, they would say. And then you listen to their words, and it's absolutely from the pit of hell what they are saying. They are leading people into to hell double fast by their words and by their thinking. And I could name some, of course. Verse 12, continuing on about this particular beast, And he exerciseth, the second beast, exerciseth all the power of the first beast. He is the PR man, the public relations man, the advertising agency of the first beast. And the first beast says, well, look, you handle my campaign. You see? And so he says, all my power I give to you as long as I am the center of the particular campaign that you you are uh, putting on on the surface of the earth. He exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and he causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. In other words, this man is there to promote everything concerning the revived Roman Empire. That's what it's all about. And he doesn't just promote the best interests of this particular political organization. He causes the people to worship the system. And this tells us something that we're going to see later on about this man. He is primarily a religious man. His purpose is to use religion to get people in bondage to the state. You have here the type of system in which the state and religion are combined. And it is for this reason, as we will see just a little in in a few minutes, that this particular second beast is called by the title, the false prophet. The first character, the beast, is a political character. The second one, the false prophet that we have here, uh, is actually a religious man. Now, he's the second character that we're going to deal with. And to find the third one, we've got to go to Revelation 12. So, turn back with me to Revelation and chapter 12, and let's have a look at this third character. These are not yet in order of importance. I'll put them in order of importance in just a moment. In Revelation chapter 12, and beginning verse 3, we have the third character. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. As John was looking, he saw a wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon. And as he looks at this dragon, it has a familiar ring to it. It looks just like the first beast. Look what it says. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And we've seen that as the design of the first beast. And the reason that this dragon and the first beast have the same design, we will see in 
just a few minutes' time later on. Verse 4, we read something about this dragon. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Now the question is, who is this, uh, this uh, animal that John sees clearly arising in the heavens? The answer, fortunately, is given to us. If you go down to verse 9, here he is. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Now there he is. The third character, therefore, we're dealing with after the beast and the false prophet is Satan himself. There they are. These are the three characters who dominate the whole of the tribulation. Go back to verse 4 and let's just see something of the power that Satan has. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. The word drew means to sweep away. And it means that he has power over this group of individuals. He has power over one-third, it says, of the stars of heaven. And as soon as we see that phrase, stars of heaven, we have to ask a question. Who or what are the stars of heaven? Does it mean literal stars? If it means literal stars, then what it says is he has power over one-third of the literal stars and he sweeps them down onto the face of the earth. No, it's quite obvious that is not what is meant as far as Revelation 12 is concerned. Well, to find out, we have to turn to the Bible and as usual, the Bible is its own best commentary. And so, if you keep your finger in this particular place, go to Job 38 and let's have a look and see what we mean by the stars of heaven. Job 38, just before the book of Psalms. Right, now, Job, of course, has had advice from a lot of people, and in Job 38, God now decides that he wants to talk to Job. And the first thing he's going to do is remind Job just how great he is, and really what a speck of dust Job is. And... Verse 1 begins it. The Lord starts speaking to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee an answer thou me. In other words, Job, I want a few answers from you. Verse 4. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is a nice creationist passage, praise God. He doesn't say, where were you in the 3,000 million years that it took me to lay down the earth? He doesn't say that. Ended up in a nursing home. <laughs> he says, where were you in the moment of time when I actually laid the foundations of the earth? Now, when was this? Well, it says right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created out of nothingness the heaven, singular, and the earth. The heaven and the earth. The heaven, the atmosphere, the earth, actually what is below the atmosphere. On the very first day of creation, the earth plus the atmosphere were created and there was nothing else created in the physical realm. There was nothing else at all. And isn't it interesting the way that the Bible focuses instantly on planet Earth 
and says, the whole of my purposes are being played out on that planet. That's our answer, by the way, when people say, is there life on other planets? The answer is absolutely no. Definitely not. God's purpose is on planet Earth. And he says, well, where were you then? Well, the answer is, of course, Job was nowhere at all. He hadn't been created out of nothing yet. In fact, man wasn't created until the sixth day. So there were five days to go before Job's great, 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 whatever it is, grandfather was actually created. Job wasn't around. And then he says, declare if thou has understanding. And in verse 5 and 6, we see God as the great architect right? The one who laid it out. Who's laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? In other words, what keeps it in line, Job, you know? Where have I put the guide ropes, the guy ropes to hold it down in a wind? Please tell me if you can. Or who has stretched the line upon it? And then it says, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone. And in verse 7, we have the reference to stars. When the morning stars sang together, and it means joyously singing together. Now the question is, stars, were they literal stars? No, they weren't. How do we know? In Genesis chapter 1, the stars were not created until the fourth day of creation. And God is dealing with the first day of creation. Therefore, who are these stars that he's talking about? This refers to the angelic creation. And the stars mentioned here are angels. And it says quite clearly that when God laid the heaven and the earth, the angels sang for joy. When we finally come on to deal with the subject of the angelic conflict, we will see that actually the earth was created and man was created to resolve the warfare in the angelic realm. Here are angels singing when the earth was laid down. We also read, you can read it for yourself in, of course, Isaiah 14, which deals with Lucifer. Lucifer, the shining one, and I think we can see that angels were rather glamorous creatures. All right, back to Revelation 13. And let's see where that gets us. Sorry, Revelation 12, I mean. Let's see where it gets us. Verse 4. And his tail, Satan's tail, as a dragon, of course, had power over the third part of the stars of heaven. And this is the reason that we say that one-third of the angels are fallen and two-thirds remained loyal with God. In fact, one-third of all the angels are what we call demons. And do you see what happens here? And this is during the tribulation. It says, uh, and he cast them to the earth. And here's the horror of the tribulation. Not only is the Holy Spirit removed as the restrainer of evil, but every demon is on the face of this earth. Absolutely incredible when you understand the type of evil that is going to break out on the surface of the earth. All right. The three characters then, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan. And can you see that at the beginning of the tribulation, you have the beast on the earth, you have the false prophet on the earth. Satan begins, of course, in heaven and on the earth. But we read something a little further down. Go now to verse 7, 8, and 9, and let's see it. And there was war in heaven. That is going to 
be during the tribulation period. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And it seems as if halfway through the tribulation, the devil himself is thrown out of heaven and comes down onto the face of the earth. You imagine the devil himself walking on the face of the earth. I doubt today whether Satan makes many visits to the earth. I think he spends most of his time accusing you um, before the throne of, of the Lord. That's what I feel. And Jesus Christ is, of course... Um, according to 1 John chapter 2, our defense lawyer up in the heavens, defending us against the attacks of the devil. You imagine what it's going to be like. The devil unrestrained on the face of this earth. It's going to be absolutely appalling. All right, here are the three. Let's see in Scripture where the three are named, and that will give us the right order. Turn to Revelation 16. Revelation 16, beginning verse 13. And we see the order in which they should be. You can probably guess it yourself. First of all, you've got the devil. Then you've got the beast. Then you've got the false prophet. Right, now this is a period of time in Revelation 16, just before the battle which ends the tribulation, which we'll be dealing with a few weeks' time. Verse 3, and I saw three unclean spirits, demons, like frogs, come out of the mouth of first of all the dragon, and then out of the mouth of the beast, and then out of the mouth of the false prophet. And these demons actually are calling the nations together to battle. And isn't this amazing? These three characters, the devil, the beast, the false prophet, they have power over the demonic realm. And they use demons to control human beings as far as the earth is concerned. Now these three. The amazing thing is that these three, of course, are blasphemies because they are trying to displace, first of all, the Lord himself. You remember that Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. And yet here we have the devil trying to be the Lord of the heavenly realm, the angels. That is a blasphemy. He's trying to usurp the position that Jesus has. Jesus, Lord of the earth, well now the beast is the dictator of the earth. He is the one who sets himself up as king of the earth. He is the benefactor, the philanthropist, that everyone says, oh, what a wonderful man he is, the perfect man. And it's the position held only by the Lord, but he usurps it. And then the false prophet tries to be the one who is the great prophet. But Deuteronomy 4 talks about Jesus, and he calls him the prophet that is to come. These are all, therefore, blasphemous in their uh, activity, all trying to usurp the position of the Lord. But do you know something? Their blasphemy is even greater than that. For I've called the talk tonight the Satanic Trinity, because these three are actually together a blasphemous uh, counter-type, as it were, of the Trinity, which is our Godhead. The Godhead that we have, you remember we have one God, 
but three persons. They are one in essence, but three personalities. We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, and they all share exactly the same character. They're all sovereign. Hallelujah. Jesus is sovereign, the Father is sovereign, the Holy Spirit is sovereign. They're all absolute righteousness, all absolutely just, all eternal life, and all the characteristics. And we could draw it like this. Uh, we could draw a triangle with the Father at the top, with the Son, Jesus Christ the Son, at the bottom, and the, the Holy Spirit along the bottom line. So there you've got a triangle, the apex is the Father, and along the base you've got the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here is how we would represent the Trinity. What we mean by this is that although the three are equal, they have a different role. And the Bible shows that it's God the Father who is the instigator. He is the one who planned everything. He is the one who had the idea and then put the thing into action. Then you've got the Son who actually fulfilled Father's plan. He came and he put the, the whole thing into action and fulfilled it to the, the last detail. And then you've got the Holy Spirit who reveals the plan as far as the earth is concerned. Ah, what about our satanic trinity? You have a very similar thing. We can draw another triangle showing the satanic trinity. You have the devil at the apex. You have then the beast at one corner of the base, and you have the false prophet at the other corner. And you'll notice this, that there is an identity between these two triangles. For it is the devil who is the one who has instigated the plan of the tribulation. He is the one who thought it up. He is the one who inspires it. He is the one who actually began the thing moving. Then you've got the beast down here, and the beast, then, is the one who actually fulfills Satan's plan, as far as the, the earth is concerned. Yeah. Then you've got the false prophet, and we'll see that the false prophet is the one who reveals the, the plan as far as the world is concerned. Okay. Now, these are this is a satanic uh, type of the true trinity. Incidentally, you can see that most clearly between the sun and the beast here. Do you remember that we saw earlier that actually the devil is seen as a dragon having seven heads? Do you remember? Ten horns. And do you remember we saw the beast was similar? And do you remember the words of Jesus about his father? He said, the father and I are one. He who has seen me has seen my father. And isn't it amazing here that the beast and the devil are seen as very, very similar indeed? Absolutely satanic, you know, the plan behind this. There are all sorts of other similarities, incidentally. Um, the, the beast has his major ministry for three and a half years, half of the tribulation. That's when his full power comes to him. And, of course, we know that Jesus ministered for uh, three and a half years. Do you see? It's, it's a parallel. Of course, the parallel soon breaks down. We find that Jesus is called holy. Uh, the beast is called the lawless one. You see? Well, there you've got it. And we could use these phrases. The devil, therefore, we can say is anti-God, anti-the Father. He's put himself up as equal with God, and he's the type. Then we can say the beast is anti-Christ, and the false prophet is anti-spirit. And, of course, as soon as you see the, the phrase anti-Christ used, 
it begins ringing bells. The Beast, who is the dictator of the revived Roman Empire, he has all sorts of names. The Antichrist is one. The Beast is another. The Son of Perdition is another. The Man of Sin is another. The Lawless One is another. You see, these are titles all related to the Beast. Now here you've got the Satanic Trinity on the face of the earth during the period we call the Tribulation. All right, we know quite a lot about the devil. We certainly know quite a lot about the beast. We've covered the beast in some detail. And so let's have a look now at this character here who is the false prophet. And let's see how he does a job very similar to that of the Holy Spirit. So let's go to, back to Revelation 13 and we'll complete the chapter. All right, Revelation 13. We've already seen that this character, the false prophet, is a religious man. Let me tell you the reason that the devil allows a religious man to come up in the tribulation. We've seen this before when we talked about Mystery Babylon. But actually, the devil knows full well that man is not just a physical and social being. He knows that we are basically spiritual beings. And he knows full well that if you take God out of a man's life, there is a vacuum left where God and spiritual life ought to be. And he, the devil knows full well that men will be attracted back to God unless that vacuum is filled. And that's why he invented religion. You've heard me say many times, religion is the ace trump of the devil, right? It's the winning card, he thinks, that he's got in his hand. Because what does he do? He takes a person who is unregenerate, he gives them a big dose of religion, and all of a sudden they think they're all right. You know? So they think they're saved now, they think they're living good, decent lives, which will get them into heaven, and the worst thing is, when they hear the gospel preached, they nod as if they know what it's all about. You see? And they're totally vaccinated as far as the truth is concerned. And the devil, you know, is a cunning person as far as religion is concerned. And so during the tribulation, he knows that men will have this, this void inside of them. And so he makes sure that their whole spiritual capacity is used up with religion. And I've got very bad news for those of you who thought that religion may be coming to an end. During the tribulation, religion has the biggest revival it's ever had. The apostate church breaks out in a big way and you find the state and the apostate religion going hand in hand. In fact, in Revelation uh, chapter 17, you see the political system as a beast and the religious system riding on the back of the beast. You see? And they progress together. Isn't that wonderful? Religion and the state, hand in hand, both confirming one another's message. By the way, I should tell you, at the very end of the tribulation, finally the state thinks it can do without religion and kicks the religious system off. I should just tell you that that is the end of it. But the apostate church rises. Now, right down the centuries, people have been uh, trying to identify the apostate church. They've said it's this denomination, that denomination, this denomination, and it's this old fallacy that, uh, or heresies, I suppose, that human beings fall into of trying to think that one group of people has all bad in them. You know, you get it today. Russia's all bad, or America's all bad. In fact, uh, evilness is spread 
pretty generally, you know, in most nations. And as far as I can see today, the apostate church is coming, and I think there is going to be a time when the apostates in every denomination will be uniting together. I see the World Council of Churches as the forerunner of this apostate uh, church of the tribulation. That's one of the reasons, of course, we have absolutely nothing to do with the World Council of Churches as a fellowship. You see, it's going to go through a tremendous revival. And the real believers in the tribulation who we'll deal with next time, they are going to be the persecuted minority and they will have the most dreadful time and people will think they're doing God's will by putting them to death. It's absolutely appalling. All right, let's uh, have a look then at what happens. Um, We've seen verse 11 and verse 12, which describes the false prophet. And let's just read verse 12 again. He exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him. He causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. You remember the revival of the Roman Empire. Verse 13, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And with the Holy Spirit restrained, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit removed, suddenly Satan comes into his own and he starts doing incredible things on the face of the earth. Do you remember when I talked about the he who restrains being removed? I said that we can't really appreciate the things that will go on in the tribulation because we've never known the earth without the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit. When he is gone, all wonders are going to break out. Satanic miracles. And you imagine this false prophet, he's going to go and say, by the way, the system that we are in is of God, and to prove it, God's going to give you a sign. Fire's going to come down from the heavens, and he's going to call fire down, and it will work. Yes? Remember Deuteronomy 13. Yes? Because the Jews will have to remember it in that day. Even if a man says a thing will happen, and it comes to pass, but he is causing you to go away from the living God, have nothing to do with him. And they'll have to remember that. Here's the false prophet, fantastic power. But it gets worse. Verse 14, And he deceiveth them that dwell in the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And now we have the outbreak of idolatry. He demands that an image be made which will become the center of religion in the tribulation. It's probably a statue of a man. I rather think it's going to be like the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had made. you remember in the book of Daniel? When he set it up on the plain of Dura and he said, you must all fall down and worship this image. And do you remember the three children, as we call them, refused to fall down and worship? And then you get the incident of the fiery furnace coming along. And he puts up images all over the place, and it is the worship center of the beast. And the people go to these centers, and they start worshiping. One of the places he tries to put up such an image, of course, is in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus called this the abomination of desolations. He said, as soon as you see them setting it up, run to the hills. Do you remember? We dealt with that in Daniel's 70 weeks. Yes? 
These are the statues that are going to go up. They become the center of worship. And that's why from this chapter to the end of Revelation, these images are mentioned about seven more times, and every time connected with worship of the beast. But it doesn't stop there. Now have a look at the type of miracle that he's able to do. Verse 15 says something that's very eerie, something that's very strange. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Somehow, this image seems to be living. We don't know whether it looks as if it's breathing or what happens, but definitely it seems to have some life within it. And it's even more astounding than that, because if you read the next section, it says that the image of the beast should both speak, let's leave the last bit at the moment, that the image of the beast should speak. This does not mean a sort of tape recorder in its mouth, so that it is able, you know, to regurgitate the same things, you know, like it's time to worship or something like this. What this means is, this image is able to have a conversation with the people who come and able to answer questions. Now this seems totally beyond comprehension unless you know your Old Testament. For in the Old Testament, there are a group of demons which have a very easy name to remember. The group of demons have the title O-B, which is pronounced in Hebrew, of. They are of spirits, and I call them ventriloquist spirits. They're the ones that mediums used to use in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament days, do you know, if you'd lost a loved one, you could actually go to a medium, and the medium say, oh yes, fine, uh, who was it, your Uncle George, or whoever it was, and they would sit there, and the person would be in the room, and all of a sudden they'd hear Uncle George's voice. And they'd say, are you all right? And this voice would say, yes, I'm all right. And they'd recognize the accent. They'd recognize all the details of speech. You know, and it was amazing. And sometimes the mediums could actually echo the voice. I even understand in America there are some mediums who are able to do that today. That is not the dead person speaking. That is simply these spirits who are ventriloquist spirits copying the voice of the particular person who has died. Do you see how deceitful this is, by the way? Some person who has been bereaved, and suddenly they hear the voice of their loved ones. No wonder they're taken in. This is the type of deception. And every statue will have one of these demons, and the demon will have question and answer sessions. It will actually answer the questions that is put to it. Today, they cannot get away with it on a large scale because of the restraining activity of the Holy Spirit. In those days, that's going to be removed. Absolutely terrifying. But then the rest of the verse tells us what is the push behind this idolatry. Do you remember in Mystery Babylon, I said that everything we listen to on the radio has a push behind it. Now what's the push behind this idolatry? It's given. Look what it says. I'll read verse 15 again. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And that is the whole purpose behind all of this religious and political system. It is so that those who will not worship the beast, i.e. who will not in fact worship the devil, 
are caused to be put to death. And the demons say, put them to death, they're heretics. Put them to death, they are apostates. Well, there are two categories of people who are going to be uh, under persecution. One, the true believers, who, knowing these passages, knowing these things, they're not going to do, do this. They're certainly not going to join in uh, this type of, of worship. We'll be seeing those, as I said, next week. And the second group are, of course, the Jews, who refuse any form of idolatry. These uh, statues will be the center of anti-Semitism in the tribulation. Anti-Semitism is going to be rife <clears throat> during the period that we call the tribulation. It is going to be appalling for those Jews. Do you know they're going to be beaten in such a dreadful way that no one will want anything to do with them except for Gentile believers. And the Gentile believers are going to be the only ones who take them in. They won't have much to give either, but they'll give as much as they have. Let's just read on and we'll see why they won't have much to give. All right? And here you get it. In verse 17 then, oh sorry, verse 16, and he causeth all, both small and great, that doesn't mean those under five feet and those above six feet. <laughs> it means those who are great as far as their position in society is concerned and those who are insignificant. Right? He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor. Isn't it amazing? Still got poor in the tribulation. Rich and poor, free and bond. That's employers and employees, both of them. To receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And this is going to be the mark of the beast. And look what it says in verse 17, that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast. And forget the last bit just for the moment. Now, it looks as if the present technology tells us what this is going to be. I think myself that this is going to be an invisible tattoo, excuse me, an invisible tattoo, a number which is going to be given to every person in the political system of the beast. I think it will be invisible. It will be picked up only by machines with special sensors. And their right hand will be tattooed with their number and their foreheads. The type of idea is this, that when you go to a supermarket, when you go to a supermarket, you will actually go in and uh, you've bought certain goods and all you'll have to do is take your goods to the checkout. You will put your hand on a certain plate which will read your number and that will simply uh, subtract the cost of the goods from your bank account. And so you'll pass through and take your goods home. No money will have changed hands at all. And whatever services you do, you put your hand, you buy petrol, and the cashier says, yes, could I have your hand, please? And she'll put your right hand on the machine, and it will read off the thing. Isn't it amazing? In our day and age, that's not so far-fetched. In John's day and age, they couldn't understand what this was about. You know, it's absolutely staggering. They thought it was a brand mark, like the slaves. And what about in the forehead? Oh, it's very cunning, this. You see, it means that the police can look through a special uh, pair of binoculars or infrared detectors or whatever it is, and they can see who you are. They read off your number, they check with their computer, they get your name, address, <coughs> what you do for a living, who you're married to, who your grandfather wa was, how many children you've got, everything about you. Absolutely staggering. Do you know the police do a similar thing today? <coughs> Only the thing they do today is right, of course. Most of us are now computerized as far as our cars are concerned. 
and we've sent off to Swansea, you know, unless you've got a car that's 150 years old or something. And we've sent off to Swansea, and it's been registered at Swansea. <clears throat> and many police cars now have a little machine inside of them, and if they see a car acting up, they will simply tap out the number plate, and up in their car will come the owner of the car plus his address. They then tell the car to pull over, and they go to the front of the car, and they say, uh, do you own this car, sir? He says, yes. And they say, what is your name? What's your address? And they can tell instantly whether he's the true owner or not. Do you see? And so the police are one up as far as the motorist is concerned. Well, it's going to be a simple matter. It's simply a step from that to this present system. We are nearer, you know, than many people think as far as this system is concerned. But who is not allowed to have the mark? I'll tell you who. The Jews won't be allowed to have the mark. And the believing Gentiles won't either. What does that mean? It means that they will be persecuted, there will be very little food available, they won't be able to get succor from any source at all. And you imagine, in that time, there will be Gentile believers, and they'll find Jews knocking at their door. And they'll say, are you Jewish? Yes, come in. And they'll say, we haven't got much, but what we've got, you can have. And do you remember in Matthew 25, Jesus spoke about these, from 31 onwards, Jesus spoke about these Gentiles, and he said, you saw me naked, you clothed me. You saw me hungry, you fed me. You saw me thirsty, you gave me to drink. You saw me in prison, you came and visited me. And they said, but when did we do it? And he said, as much as you've done it to one of these, you've done it unto me. Wonderful, you see. And then he turns to the others and he says, well, you saw me like this and you didn't do this. And there they, he is commending the people who help his beloved people in the period of the tribulation. It's most wonderful. And that's why that mysterious passage is in the book of Matthew and chapter <clears throat> 25. All right, but let's finish right at the end. Look what it says. And here it talks about all the number of the beast. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. <clears throat> For it is a number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score and six, which quite simply is six, six, six. Now, of course, six, as far as the Bible is concerned, represents man. And so the first thing we get from that number is, here is a glorification of man. Everything connected with man is glorified as far as the tribulation is concerned. But this seems to also suggest that when the tribulation comes, people will know for sure who the beast is. They'll be able to work it out. How will they be able to do it? Well, most of you know this already. But many of the ancient languages use their alphabets to count with. The Greeks used it, the Hebrews used it, and certainly in Latin, some of the numerals, uh, some of the alphabet is used. In Latin, for example, uh, of course, the, the upright is the number 1, V is a 5, X is a 10, L is a 50, C is a 100, and a D is 500. The M, by the way, was simply two Ds side by side, and that represents a 1,000. So can you see, using Greek, Hebrew, and using Latin, you can work out the name of any man. You can check it for yourself. If you take the Greek word uh, Jesus there, you can actually work it out. For those of you who want to do this, I would uh, recommend you get a copy of New Testament Greek. Teach yourself New Testament Greek. 
And if you turn to page 114, you'll find a list of all the numbers. And you can simply then work out the value. If you put the numbers for Jesus in, right, uh, it soon works out. And the number it comes to is 888. Eight, eight. Iota is 10. Right, eta is 8. Sigma is 200. Um, Omicron is 70. Upsilon is 400. Sigma is 200, and if you add those all together, I hope, it comes to 888. And 8 is the number of resurrection. So there's Jesus' number. He's the God of resurrection. Wonderful. Well, so you can work it out. The interesting thing was, by the way, that in Greek, Alpha was 1, Beta was 2, Gamma was 3, Delta was 4, Epsilon was 5, but do you know, they then left a gap where 6 was. And they had a mysterious symbol for six, which they called stigma, and it looked like a snake. Interesting. And three snakes next to one another, three stigmas next to one another, 666, was the secret sign of devil worship in the ancient world. Very interesting. So this was absolutely full of meaning. Oh, by the way, certain people have tried to work out who Antichrist is. You know, and they've added all sorts of things together. You can get some interesting results. You really can. The word tradition adds up to 666 in the Greek. The word apostasy adds up to 666 in the Greek. The word Romans, when taken in Hebrew letters, adds up to 666. Balaam adds up to 666, you know? Um, Caesar of the Romans, when taken in Hebrew letters, adds up to 666. And Caesar, Nero, taken in Hebrew letters, also adds up to 666. So you get all these people and they say, well, here are the Antichrists. Well, no. In fact, these people simply show us types of the one who is to come. By looking at these people, we can see what he is going to be like. It's rather interesting, Sir Anthony Eden, who was a Bible believer, thought Mussolini was the Antichrist. You see, he was quite convinced that he was. And the interesting thing is, we are now able to say, well, Mussolini was a type of the Antichrist. He was a Roman, he was based in Rome, and he established a Roman Empire. Let me just show you one thing about Mussolini. His empire began when his troops marched into Abyssinia, that's present-day Ethiopia, in 1936. His empire came to an end when he was kicked out of his last colony in 1943. And if you work it out, it's exactly the length of time of the tribulation, seven years. Actually, it works to the day, which is rather fascinating. And so you can see that Mussolini indeed was a type of this man who is to come. But these only tell us basically what the person is going to be like. In fact, it's only when the tribulation comes that we will know. Sorry, that they will know. Very important. <laughs> who the man is going to be. If he should appear before, then we will have a means of checking who he is. Later on in the series, we will see what happens to the satanic trinity. It is not a happy ending. But for seven years, the earth experiences a bloody and a vengeful and an appalling period of history, especially the Jews who go through terrible persecution, especially the believers in the Lord. But at the end, Jesus is the great victor, and he wins through. Next time we're going to study evangelism, true believers, and Jews in the tribulation when we come on to the subject of the woman clothed with the sun. God bless you all. Amen.